If I can encourage you to take your seats and we'll start. We're going to read again from Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 4 to 10. Then I'll pray and then immediately uh, Gary will come to bring his paper to us. So let us first hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 7 and commencing from verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are recovered by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's turn to God and pray together. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together today and for this conference. We thank you for Gary and his work with the John Owen Centre. And we pray now that you will bless and strengthen him, give him grace and wisdom and the help of the Holy Spirit, that as he brings all that has been prepared in his own mind and heart to us, that he might be aware of the Lord's help and of the Holy Spirit's power. We give you thanks that through Jesus Christ, our mediator, we can turn to you this afternoon, cry out, Lord, for you to hear us, to bless us, to refresh us now, to cleanse us through your word and speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Spencer, very much. I'm resisting the temptation to make jokes about men falling from windows. Flavia. <laughs> they're, they're getting there, they're getting there. <laughs> um, we're going to think about paying tithes in Abraham and the doctrine of original sin and realism and original sin. And you should have a handout. Has anyone not got the handout? You've not got it. Clearly you've, you've walked past it. Straight past it without noticing it. Let's, um, can we? Thanks, Fabian, very much. We dish them out. One more at the front. Everyone got one? Some non-Christians do believe in the sinfulness of men and women and children. There are non-Christian versions of the fallenness of the human race. There are, of course, many non-Christians who would believe in the essential goodness of humanity. It seems to me that a whole lot of our political life is predicated upon a belief in essential human goodness. But there are many who, in their more reflective moments, will recognise that we are 
in some sense, though not narrated with a narrative of the fall as the Bible does, but that we are in some sense fallen creatures, depraved. The Oxford philosopher Robert Skidelsky, for example, said in an interview that original sin is a good metaphor. I think we are terribly flawed. Terribly flawed. So there is some sympathy for original sin in that sense, in the sense of innate corruption, but it seems to me that there is no sympathy for the idea that this comes to us as a punishment imputed to us on the basis of Adam's sin. As soon as we introduce the notion of imputation, the idea that it comes to us because of what Adam did, it becomes distinctly, and I think as far as I'm aware, pretty much universally an unpopular idea that people resist. It is thought to be irrational and immoral that we should be born with the effects, conceived with the effects of Adam's sin. And we experience in our times, don't we, a shift from the Bible being viewed as simply untrue to the Bible being viewed as actually evil, immoral. And this would be one of the doctrines, I think, which people consider to be immoral. There are a number of others, aren't there? The exclusive (coughs) claims of Christ are deemed to be immoral. The doctrine of hell is deemed to be immoral. A substitutionary atonement, interestingly, for the same reason as the rejection of the imputation of sin from Adam to us is deemed to be immoral. This challenge on this point is, however, not a new one, is it? It's not a a modern era thing to think that there is a problem with the imputation of Adam's sin. You go back in the history of the church and you find plenty of people arguing the same problem. I think, for example, 1740, John Taylor, somebody against whom Jonathan Edwards wrote, John Taylor of Norwich, in his book The Scriptural Doctrine of Original Sin Proposed to Free and Candid Examination, writes this. A representative of moral action is what I can by no means digest. A representative, the guilt of whose conduct shall be imputed to us and whose sins shall corrupt and debauch our nature is one of the greatest absurdities in all the system of corrupt religion. Now, back in, well, four years ago at this conference, we visited the topic of original sin. Some of you were here uh, with the paper that Steve Jeffrey gave. And uh, this paper is, I think, probably sits happily alongside that paper, uh, saying things that align with it, though saying different things. But I think the problem of cultural hostility means it's a good thing for us to revisit the question of original sin Again, four years is not too soon, I think, given the strength of the vehemence against this doctrine. There is, therefore, an apologetic motive to considering the doctrine of original sin. This is one of the things on which we'll be challenged. It's one of the things on which we need to be ready to give an answer. In other cultures, that may not be the case. Friends from Africa tell me that their culture has absolutely no problem with this. Uh, But this one certainly does. But there are other reasons, not just apologetic, aren't there? Because we know that an apologetic issue soon becomes a pastoral issue. That is because uh, non-Christians are converted and they bring with them the questions that they had. So if something is a question that the world asks, it will be a question that the new Christian is likely to ask. 
But not just that, we all live in the world and we're surrounded by the questions that the world is asking and therefore we ourselves will ask questions, even if we're not newly converted, which reflect the questions that the world asks. And so if the under-shepherd is to care for the flock and to help them with those questions, this becomes a pastorally significant question as well. But it isn't actually just a question that the world asks. There is an internal theological imperative behind asking questions about the imputation of Adam's sin, and that is that if you read the Bible carefully, the Bible itself might make you wonder about it. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. And any attentive reader of Ezekiel 18 or Deuteronomy 24, 16 or other passages is bound to find himself asking, well, how does that fit with the fact that here... Lots of souls who didn't sin die. Adam was the one in the garden. We went there. How does that work? So it isn't just an unbelieving question. It's not a a question, therefore, to be viewed with some suspicion or hostility. It is a proper internal theological question by somebody thinking through what the Bible teaches. It is, of course, also a question with great dogmatic significance, apologetic, pastoral and dogmatic significance, most notably because of the Adam-Christ connection, that connection that Flavian has uh, taken us to this morning between the two sons of God. But more broadly, because of the way in which our understanding of sin shapes our understanding of redemption. Our redemption is redeeming us from a particular sinful condition. So what we think about redemption is affected by what we think about sin, And therefore, this becomes an important question beyond the simple boundaries of sin itself and into redemption. But perhaps at the deepest level, original sin is important, not just for those reasons, but also for our very self-understanding, because it tells us who we are. And at that point, when we find the doctrine difficult, things get particularly tricky for us, don't they? Because we find an awkward conjunction we can see that the doctrine of original sin is decisive for our understanding of who we are, and yet at the same time we find it difficult to understand and to fathom. In fact, any, any systematician you look at from the history of the church, um, going all the way back, who discusses the question of the imputation of Adam's sin, they will all tell you this is an extremely difficult question. When you find that, it's hard to know whether that's encouraging or discouraging, isn't it? It's it's encouraging because they found it hard too, but it's discouraging because it must be really, really super hard. Pascal, interestingly, expressed this irony very well. Listen to this. It is, however, an astonishing thing that the mystery furthest removed from our knowledge, namely that of the transmission of sin should be a fact without which we can have no knowledge of ourselves. For it is beyond doubt that there is nothing which more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, seem incapable of participation in it. The transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it seems also very unjust. Certainly, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine And yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. The knot of our condition takes its twists and turns in this abyss, so that man is more inconceivable without this mystery than this mystery is inconceivable to man. 
Have a think about that. (laughs) Man is more inconceivable without this mystery than this mystery is inconceivable to man. Putting it simply, I thought you could boil that down by saying, you can't live with it, you can't live without it. Now, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to meet Abraham. When we meet Melchizedek this afternoon, and we meet him in the context of the history of Christian theology, he brings with him something else in his hands. He brings with him one major attempt to solve this puzzle of the imputation of Adam's sin. And here it is in Hebrews 7, which for many thinkers is part of a realist doctrine of original sin. And it all hinges on verses 9 and 10. Let me reread them. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We meet here then the realism of Samuel J. Baird and William G.T. Shedd, both serious, conservative, 19th century American Presbyterian theologians. Shedd will tell us this is really the great tradition of the church to think in the way that he thinks. He certainly claims Augustine for his view. I think he's wrong about that. But anyway, how? Essentially, the argument is we are punished for Adam's sin because we did it. We're punished for his sin because we did it before we were even born. So he's not saying because by having a fallen nature we do it, as some people say. No, no, no. We were there in a carefully qualified sense, which I will unpack. How were we there? Well, we were there because our souls were actually in Adam. Shed defends a tradition doctrine of the origin of the soul. As he puts it, this idea applies the idea of species to both body and soul. Now, Shed, let me be clear, does not hold a material conception of the soul, although some of what he says could make you think that he means that the soul is a sort of lump of stuff that could be divided up. He doesn't think that. He's quite clear that the soul is immaterial. But his view nonetheless applies the idea of descent to the soul in a way that is analogous to the way we normally think of the body. As your body came from your parents, so did your soul. It was not created out of nothing at your conception. It was inherited. Hence the name, your soul is brought over, traduco, from your ancestors, traducian. In fact, it's more than that. Your soul didn't just come from your parents. Your soul came all the way from Adam and has been passed all the way down. Your soul was actually in him. Now, again, let me be clear. It was not in him as an individual soul. You were not yet what we would think of as a person in Adam. But, Shed says... The entire invisible substance of all the generations of mankind was in Adam. 
It all began when he was created in the image of God. That was the creation of the entire, I'm going to use a phrase I'm going to keep using, solic mass of humanity. That is to say, the whole, invisible, immaterial, as yet unindividuated, let me pause to make sure we're all happy with what we mean by that, not yet individual souls, unindividuated, solic mass was in him, numerically one in Adam. In him it was not yet distributed and individualized, Shed says, but it was capable of being transformed into myriads of self-conscious individuals. And that, of course, is what would begin with Cain. All subsequent souls have been individuated out of this mass of solic substance carried originally by Adam. I can see some of you are looking at me as if this is really, really odd. We'll we'll come to think critically about it in a minute. So Adam carried our very nature in him, our solic nature. He did not carry, let's be clear, a mass of persons. If you think that the picture of this is, um, if you've seen the film The Mission, do you remember when um, Robert De Niro's character is climbing up the slope and he's got this, the, the, the net with all of his armour on his back, symbolising his sins? You think, if you're thinking Adam's got a giant net with every human being in it, carrying it, no, 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 we're not yet individuals. Okay, so he's not doing that. He's carrying our nature, our solic nature. He's carrying our physical nature in him, but he's also carrying our psychical nature. And for Shed, well, actually, your nature is what you really are at the very deepest level. And that's why you were in him. And you can say that. Now, if you've not heard that before, it may sound surprising. The first thing to say is it is an incredibly useful answer to the problem of original sin. Or so it seems to be. How so? Well, as Shedd says, sin was committed by those to whom it is imputed. Nobody receives it who didn't do it because we were all there. Because our souls were in that one solic mass carried by Adam, we did it. As he puts it, This means you don't actually need any idea of representation. You don't need to say that Adam represented us because we were there. If, therefore, he writes, the posterity were existent and present in the progenitors by natural or substantial union, they did not need to be represented and could not be since representation supposes absence of substance. Heshed actually denies the idea of representation in his understanding of Adam. And so, he says, the problem of the doctrine of original sin is solved. These are his words. The doctrine of the specific unity of Adam and his posterity removes the great difficulties connected with the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity that arise from the injustice of punishing a person for sin in which he had no kind of participation. And so, Shedd says, he has not cut 
but untied the Gordian knot. In this argument, Shed uses Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10. But he uses Hebrews 7, 9 and 10 in two quite different ways, and it'll, it'll sketch out a little bit more of Shed says to observe how he uses them. First of all, he uses the verses very confidently and definitely to prove his traducian view of the origin of the soul. He writes this, It contradicts the context to confine the statement to the physical and irrational side of Levi and his descendants. In other words, it couldn't just be his body that was in Abraham's loins. The paying of tithes which led to the statement is a rational and moral act and implies a rational and moral nature as the basis of it. If Levi was there paying tithes, that is an action, a a deliberation, a decision that involves the mind and the will. And if Levi did that in Abraham, it can't just have been his body that was there, it must have been that aspect of him that is involved in such decisions, namely his soul. Very confident use of the verse to that end. Secondly, and interestingly, when he comes to talk about original sin and our relationship to Adam, he stops short of using Leviticus, uh, uh, Hebrews 7, 9 and 10 to prove that all men were in Adam. But the really interesting thing is to note why. He explains that these verses do not prove that all sinned in Adam's loins because, he says, the tribe of Levi was only a fraction of mankind. Not the entire race, but a small part of it paid tithes in Abraham. In other words, he's just saying, this is a passage about Abraham. It's not a passage about Adam. Adam isn't mentioned here. You can't use the text to say something about Adam. It definitely says something about the souls of the Levites being in Abraham, but it's not going to get you the whole human race being in Adam. So, The interesting thing there is that it reveals how a traducionist like Shedd believes that Abraham is carrying less of the solic mass than Adam did. Some of it has already been used. He only carries, Abraham only carries, the as yet unindividuated souls of his own physical descendants. And this means, it reveals, that the traditionist believes that each time a child is conceived, the solic mass in the parent reduces. As Shed puts it, a fraction, that's his word. Remember, he doesn't have a material view of the soul. A fraction of the solic mass goes to making up the new soul that is conceived. But a bit more than that, because also the whole of the rest of the mass, which is going to come to that new soul's children, has to be passed on as well. Do you get it? So, in the conception of my children, their own soul was a fraction taken out of the solic mass I was carrying. But if they're going to have children, then those fractions also had to be passed on too obviously, all the way into the future. Quite how that works, I was intrigued to think about that and how 
they must therefore be a view that it's based on divine providence, that the right fraction is passed on for all of that person's future descendants. Interesting internal question for the traducianist to think about. Soshed says there is a constant diminution of the primitive, non-individualized human nature. So it's interesting, I think, that when he uses Hebrews 7, he's very ready to use it to prove his traducianism. But he doesn't want to use it to prove original sin, not because it doesn't prove his view of the soul, but because it proves it only with reference to Abraham and not with reference to Adam. So, our meeting with Melchizedek under the guidance of Shed has led us to a realist, traducian solution to the problem of original sin. Or is it a solution? Let me just clarify for you what I want to do next. I'm not going to try to disprove the traducian view of the origin of the soul. I actually wouldn't be hugely surprised if the traducian view in some form is true. Okay. You can tell from the way I've expressed it, I can see some problems with the way Shedd does it. It's interesting, Bavink, when he discusses this question, says that the arguments for the creationist view of the soul and the traducian view of the soul, so the idea that the soul is created out of nothing at your conception, the idea that it's somehow inherited from parents, are, he says, almost equal. If you've not heard this before and you're thinking, this sounds really odd, just get hold of Shed or somebody who's a traducianist and have a read. There's a lot more to be said for the view than you might think at first glance. But my purpose is not to decide whether that is the correct view of the origin of the soul or not this afternoon. My purpose is narrower. Three things. First of all, to show that whatever other arguments may count in favour of traducianism, the ones I'm not going to talk about, Hebrews 7 doesn't teach it. Secondly, to show that even if traducianism is true, it doesn't actually solve the problem of original sin which is one of the biggest reasons for believing it to be true. <laughs> Thirdly, then, I want to try to state an alternative attempt to answer the problem of original sin. To do so, having left Shed behind at the quay, we're going to navigate past Charles Hodge, who I think is snared in the weeds over on the left somewhere. We're going to follow in the wake of John Murray, and if it's not foolhardy and proud, we hope we might even overtake him by a few metres and go a little bit further than he does but that may be hopelessly naive. So, first of all, what's wrong with Shedd's position? Um, and in particular, as he discusses Hebrews 7, though not exclusively. First category of problems with it, I think, it proves too little, actually. Proves too little. And the first way in which it proves too little is that it just shifts the moral problem along a stage. So, the challenge comes. How can I be held responsible for Adam's sin? Shed says, because your soulic nature was in him. Well, that's half an answer. It explains how my soulic nature became sinful in Adam. But it does not explain, I think, how I as a new person can be justly individuated from that soulic nature. Why should I as a new person coming into being, who on his view has not yet existed as a person, be given or constituted from that already evil soulic nature. He is very clear 
the nature sinned, the person hasn't yet sinned, the person didn't exist. Each person didn't sin as a person. Persons didn't exist in Adam. That means, I think, I was not there. Interestingly, Shed himself says, to be guilty, you don't need to be self-conscious. I agree with that. But he does say you need self-determination to become guilty. And I want to ask the question, how can an individual self-determine when it doesn't exist as an individual? There is no self to determine the self on his view. As John Murray puts it, the real question is how the individual members of the race can bear the guilt of a sin in which they did not, as individuals, personally and voluntarily participate. So first of all, it proves too little because it simply postpones the justice question to the point where the person is constituted from the nature. Secondly, it proves too little because even Shedd's very idea of a guilty nature doesn't, I think, work morally. Now, hear me correctly. I do not mean that no idea of a sinful nature works. I believe in the sinfulness of our <coughs> natures. And I agree with Canon 11 of the Helvetic Consensus. I know you were just wondering if I did. I agree with Canon 11 of the Helvetic Consensus, which says that we are culpable for our fallen nature as well as for acts. So I believe that an infant, before it commits a sentient act, is guilty for having its fallen nature. So I do believe in the idea of guilty natures. But I believe that that infant is guilty of that nature as a person, already individuated, A nature without a person, an unindividuated, or to use the language of Christology, an unhypostatic nature, a nature without a hypostasis, cannot be morally responsible. For Shed, the nature itself becomes guilty, even when it's unindividuated. To me, that makes no sense, because only persons are responsible moral subjects. Now, the next category of problem with Shed's view is that it actually proves too much. First of all, in this way, if the solic mass that starts in Adam can indeed have moral responsibility for that sin committed by Adam in the garden, why does it not also have moral responsibility for all of the other sins that he committed and indeed for all of the sins committed by all of the people through whose hands, so to speak, the solic mass has passed down to me. So why was Lamech, thinking of the little genealogy in Genesis 4, not responsible for the sin not only of Adam, but of Cain and Enoch and Irad and Mehujael and Methushel, etc., etc., etc.? because the solic mass has passed through all of them too. Why is my wife not responsible, apparently, for all of the sins of at least two of the wives of Henry VIII? And if my father-in-law's ambitious genealogical claims are to be believed, also the sins of Charlemagne the Great. We are sceptical at that point. Now, this is a standard criticism of the Traducian position. 
There is an answer, of course, which is there must be some kind of divine constitution that limits the sin incurred by the solic mass. At that point, of course, we've ceased to be realists and we've introduced some kind of federal, covenantal, divine constitution to explain how original sin works. Second way in which it proves too much. Think about this. If Hebrews 7 proves that the unindividuated soul of Levi paid tithes in Abraham, then so too did the as yet unindividuated soul of the Lord Jesus Christ descended from Abraham. Take that thought and run it past the argument of Hebrews 7 and you discover a bit of a problem, don't you? The whole argument of Hebrews 7 is that Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to that of Levi because Levi Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. But now Jesus himself paid tithes to Melchizedek. So he too has become subordinate to Melchizedek. The argument of the epistle would collapse, it seems to me. Now, is there a way then of cutting Jesus off from his ancestry at this point to make sure that he didn't do anything in Abraham, that he didn't pay tithes to Melchizedek? Well, there is. Shed has a very, I think, convincing way of dealing with the problem of Jesus inheriting his soul from Adam and yet not being guilty of original sin. He talks, he basically attributes it to the miraculous conception so that he is conceived with a purified soul. That's a great argument, I think, and, and works to answer that particular criticism of traducianism. The problem here, though, is that paying tithes to Melchizedek is not a sin. So that wouldn't deal with that problem. So then you'd have to have another way of stopping Jesus paying tithes in Melchizedek. Well, what could that be? Well, again, some kind of divine constitution, some divine covenantal structure, which means that Jesus not only doesn't inherit original sin, but also didn't do that in in, in Abraham. Well, again, you see what you're doing. You're no longer functioning in the, the realm of pure realism. You're now having to construct all sorts of things using federal categories. So I do not think that we can follow Shedd in trying to solve the puzzle of original sin, or at least to make progress with it. The question then arises, where else could we turn? Who else might help us? And if you were to get all the reformed world in this room and get them doing one of those kinetic learning exercises where you move all the people who won't think one thing to this corner of the room and all the people who think another thing to this corner of the room and you let them scatter on a spectrum between. If you've got Shed over here, you've got Charles Hodges. He's got his nose pressed in the corner over there. Hodges' view is just about as opposite to Shed's as you can get. He denies any realism in his doctrine of original sin. It's absolutely pure federalism. It's all covenant. Adam is the appointed covenantal head Full stop. End of story, that's enough. But he goes further. He even pairs down what we did in Adam. He explains that the imputation of sin means one very specific thing and one thing only. He writes this. To impute sin in scriptural and theological language is to impute the guilt of sin. This is the important bit. And by guilt is meant not criminality or moral ill-desert or demerit, 
much less moral pollution, but the judicial obligation to satisfy justice. That, he says, is all that we receive from Adam. Not criminality, not moral ill desert, not demerit, not moral pollution, as we get that later on, but not here. Simply the judicial obligation to satisfy justice. We become, in other words, only liable to punishment. The the Latin tag for this is that we do not have the reatus culpi. We don't have the the liability of blame. We only have the reatus poenae. We only have the the liability of punishment, the liability to the judicial act to be treated in this way by the judge. You see why he's way over there, can't you, compared to Shed? Shed's got us there, sinning in the garden, in our solic mass. Hodges got us over here. We are, we, we're not in the sin, we're not in the guilt, in the sense of blameworthiness. We're only in the judicial effect of Adam's sin. As a result of that, you then get the pollution as well. But that's the key moment there. Now, it seems to me that as there are problems with Shed's position, there are problems with Hodges' position as well. Here are the two main ones. First of all, exegetical. Uh, Murray points out, I think rightly, that this does not actually account for the way Paul speaks in Romans 5. If you go through Romans, second half of Romans 5, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul talks about some things which would fit with what Hodge says. Death coming on all men because of what Adam did. Well, that's the judicial sentence, isn't it? Condemnation. Well, that works as well, doesn't it? But other things, it seems, don't. The because all sinned, of verse 12. And in particular, perhaps, the idea that we are accounted sinners, which Paul teaches in the chapter. Not just that we are sentenced, but that we are made sinners, in verse 19. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This seems to go beyond saying that we receive only the judicial sentence to saying that actually, somehow, we receive the sin. So that's the exegetical problem. Then secondly, there's a moral problem, isn't there, with Hodge's position. The major problem is that it exacerbates the charge of injustice, rightly so. How can we have punishment imputed to us if we have no guilt imputed to us? How can we have guilt imputed to us if we have no sin imputed to us? It's interesting, actually, in the history of Reformed thought, the distinction between these two things, reatus culpi and reatus poenae, is rejected by the Reformed. The Reformed generally don't like the idea that you can distinguish between guilt as in blameworthiness and guilt as in penal sentence. Because in Roman Catholic theology, that's a very important idea. Because priestly absolution removes the, the culpa, the guilt of blameworthiness, but it doesn't remove the punishment. And you have to go and do that in your works of satisfaction, or else you'll do it in purgatory if you don't finish it here and now. So Rome uses this distinction between blameworthiness and the judicial sentence to say, well, this is dealt with here, but this still remains. And so the Reformed, generally speaking, don't like it. Here's John Owen. 
There can be no punishment, nor reatus poenae, the guilt of it, but where there is reatus culpi, or sin considered with its guilt. You can have punishment, you've got to have sin. There is therefore no imputation of sin where there is no imputation of its guilt. Turretin. Punishment can be inflicted only on account of culpability. Again, with specific reference to Adam, no one can in anyone deserve the punishment of death unless he had with him and in him a common sin, the cause of death. That seems to me to be absolutely right. Now, you may be thinking, hold on a minute, God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4. The question is, does he do that without reference to anyone's righteousness? So too would he condemn someone without reference to any sin in them? So, if Shed's over here and his position doesn't work, and Hodge's over here and his position doesn't work, where, where can we go? And as I say, we're going to follow in the wake of John Murray here. But let's start with Hebrews 7, see if we can find some leads here. David Gooding, in his little book on Hebrews, points us, I think, in the beginnings of the right direction for understanding the way in which Levi was in Abraham. Here's what he says. What happened there with Melchizedek, it would not have been so significant if at the time Abraham had been merely a private individual. But he wasn't. He was already founder of the nation, patriarchal head of all the great office holders, such as Moses, Aaron, David and Elijah, that were to spring from him. When therefore in his official capacity he paid tithes to Melchizedek, he was acknowledging not only for himself, but on behalf of all his descendants, high priests of Aaron's line included, the superiority of Melchizedek's office over all others. Now this I think is very helpful and it really lines up with a lot of what Flavian was saying this morning about the significance of this episode. In Genesis 14, this is not a, a private episode about the individual Abraham. This is about things like the promised land and who Abraham is in relation to the nations. So who was Abraham? Well the answer in Genesis generally we know is that he was the father of the covenant people. I'm mindful of the staging in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and uh, where the covenant language comes in. But I don't think it is wrong to say that Abraham has this special status from 12 on. So Owen unpacks this idea in his commentary on Hebrews. The idea that Abraham is the father of the people, the father of the covenant people, to whom promises were made by God that regarded actually the future generations so that they're being included in him. He is, Owen says, the foundation of a new church in the world. He received the promise for himself and for his seed. What God said and did to him, he said and did to all of his seed. God undertook for him and for his posterity. And so Owen draws the conclusion. How one may be said to do anything in another which shall be reckoned unto him as his own act? And this may be by virtue of a covenant and no otherwise. It was as the appointed head of the covenant that Abraham represented his descendants in their dealings with God and with Melchizedek. Now, how does this work? Let's think about it a little bit more metaphysically, if we may. 
Is it just a case of saying, of God saying, I establish Abraham as representative of his people in this covenant, and then he is? Is it just a case of God saying of Adam, you will represent the entire race, and then he does? Well, I want to suggest that the very form of the question is inappropriate, problematic, And the fault is with the word just. Is it just a case of God saying, I establish Abraham? Is it just a case of God saying, I establish Adam? Is it ever appropriate, I wonder, to speak of God's word as a just, just him speaking? What does the word of God do? Well, it has, as we know, creative power. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. It has power to bring something out of nothing. It has recreative power to bring life out of death, a kind of something out of nothing, as Paul says in Romans 4. And what else does it do? It then sustains the world in its very existence. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. So I would want to argue that the Bible gives us an ontology, an understanding of being, an understanding of what stuff is. And that ontology is a logontology, a logos ontology. The Bible has a logontological metaphysic. When you're thinking about such deep things, it's important to invent fun words to describe them. A little bit of light relief for you. The word spoken with regard to Adam especially, though, was not just a word. It was a covenantal word, wasn't it? In the covenant of nature, works, life, whatever you want to call it, if you accept that reading of Genesis. That covenant made him head of the race. So at that point, the Bible's ontology is a logontology, which is also a federoontology or a fedontology or a covontology. <laughs> it is a covenantal ontology, a covenontology. Sounds a little bit like a collection of witches, doesn't it? So maybe I need to keep working on the terminology. But somebody might say, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, this won't do. Because when God makes stuff, he makes stuff. What he makes with his word is then ordinarily manifest to us in the creation so that we can see it. He made the earth and we can look at it, we can touch it, we can smell it. Would we not expect then some visible, tangible connection between Adam and his posterity if God's covenantal word makes us one? Would that not be manifest within the fabric of creation itself somehow? Isn't it a problem that when you look at you lot and you think of Adam, there doesn't seem to be oneness? Now, partly I would want to to query the premise there. and I'm not sure that everything that God makes is manifested in that way. Okay. I take it that... um, we believe in immaterial souls, the manifestation of which is indirect, at least. So I'm not sure that everything that is real needs to be tangible or visible. 
But I do think, actually, we can see the indications of God's covenantal word constituting us one with Adam within the fabric of creation, indeed. Thornwell, James Henry Thornwell, another southern Presbyterian, is helpful here. Now, he really didn't like the realism of the traducians, but he did favour some kind of generic unity of the race. He puts it like this. There is a close and intimate union, though not an identity, among the members of the human family. They are one race, one blood, one body, and unity founded in the relations of individual beings. It is this unity that distinguishes the family, the state, the church, the world. That the human race is not an aggregate of separate and independent atoms, but constitutes something analogous to an organic whole with a common life springing from the intimate connection between the parts is obvious from the very organization of society. So we might say there is a blood unity of the race. And what I'm suggesting is that the blood unity of the race is a sign of the covenantal word spoken over Adam. In other words, the natural descent of the race from Adam remains, in my view, highly significant. Not because it describes the mechanism by which we participate in his sin. That would be Shedd's argument, wouldn't it? That that natural descent actually explains how we were there because he carried the soul that we get from him. Now, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that our unity as a, a race all descended from him, is a manifestation of the word that God has spoken, though it is not an exhaustive description of how that works. This is also evident, as um, Thornwell indicates there, in things like family, society, state, nation, church. It's fascinating to look up secular philosophers trying to explain why it's right to pay reparations to later generations of Aborigines who are sinned against by our ancestors or Native Americans. Why it's right for David Cameron to apologise for the Bloody Sunday Massacre when he wasn't there. They're looking for some kind of oneness. They presume some kind of oneness, actually, in what Bavink terms moral communities. Now, Adam and Christ, let me be clear, are not to be explained by those communities again. I don't think those communities do the work of explaining the mechanism. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, Bavink points out very helpfully, it's the other way around. Adam and Christ explain the possibility of human solidarity by their own existence. Any analogies don't explain them. They explain analogies by being the biggest example of this thing. Their unifying force makes our conception of moral communities elsewhere possible. So these are signs within the creation of the word that God has spoken, not full explanations of it. Now, is this federalism still? It is still federalism. It is still covenantal theology. But it's, I hope, federalism with some kind of ontological depth. Federalism with a kind of realism. Not Shedstraducian realism, but some other kind of realism. The covenantal word spoken over Adam itself created enough solidarity, enough union to bring about the immediate imputation of his sin, guilt and punishment upon all of his descendants. And it is manifested in some ways within the physical creation. That's all I can offer you by way of an answer to this problem.
Now, let me just close by saying, how can we help people understand this and accept our relation to Adam and the imputation of his sin in the church? Are there ways that we can counter the pervasive mindset of individualism and open the way for a more ready embrace of this doctrine in the church? Let me give you just a few ideas and perhaps we could discuss this further. First of all, it seems to me that individualistic churches will be powerless before an individualistic theology. Where do we see individualism? Do we not see it in the very reason that we come to church? Now, we may be very ready with our criticism of the charismatic version of individualism. It's always much easier to point out someone else's sins, isn't it? My time worshipping God. All those I songs that charismatic Christians sing. They even stand with their eyes closed as if they're just oblivious to everyone else, we might say. What's the conservative version of this? Never mind other people and their sins. What about the log in our own eye as we're talking about log ontology? (laughs) Well, it's about me and the sermon, isn't it? I come, I have minimal engagement with the people of God before the service because I am in reverent silence. More to be said for that than a minimal engagement after the service. When fairly quickly after some superficial exchanges with a few of the people in the neighbouring pews, I depart, having listened very, very carefully to the word of God. Where is the fellowship, the friendship, the conversation? Are our churches chilly places? Chilly individualistic places will be powerless to counter a theological individualism which denies the imputation of Adam's sin. The church is the obvious body which ought to be a living antidote to individualism in theology and all of the arguments based on it. Corporate living will surely be the best answer to such a criticism. It's the obvious point to live in and to highlight as a counter to individualism. Secondly, this could be manifested in our language. Having made that comment about I songs, I do think we need corporate language. We need we prayers We need we applications. How quickly do we default to individual applications in our preaching? How often do we apply to the body as a body? Are we happy with representative praying where we pray for the people on their behalf, I mean? We need lots of we's in our language to make clear that we are not simply a collection of detached individuals. Now, what, lastly, about how we could teach the complexities of logontology and covenantology in the church? Well, let me make some suggestions. First of all, never oppose the legal and the real. Never oppose the legal and the real. You see this all over the place. Turn on your antenna to the distinction between the legal and the real, and you'll find it appearing in all sorts of places. Be wary of it wherever you find it. As if... God says X is the case, and it isn't really. It's just a legal forensic thing. It comes up in the doctrine of justification, doesn't it, when we're accused of believing in a legal fiction. We do not believe in a legal fiction. We believe in a real union with Christ as the basis of our being righteous with his imputed righteousness. We do not want to oppose the real, the spiritually real, the mystically real, in the sense of the Christus mysticus body of Christ, to the legal 
We don't want to think about whether God is really, really, really father or king in relation to us. As if father is the real one, the relational one, and king is the legal one. We must insist on the richness of the metaphors of scripture and avoid polarising them like that. That will open the way for people to see that what God says in his covenantal word translates into reality. It is constitutive of reality. But surely and lastly, the way that we can help people to understand how we can be one with Adam by the force of the word of God is to teach and exalt the constitutive power of the word of God. If we are extolling in our preaching the creative power of the word of God when he made the heavens and earth, if we are extolling the sustaining power of the word of God and highlighting in our prayerful dependence on God that we only exist in this very moment, we only take this very breath because of his word, and if we are extolling the recreative power of God by which he has given us new life from the dead and made us new creatures and by which he will recreate the heavens and earth, well then people won't find it an enormous leap to think that when God said we were one with Adam, we really were.